Welcome to the Respectful Divorce Podcast. If you're considering a divorce, it's important to know that you have options for how you divorce. On the Respectful Divorce Podcast, we'll explore those options and provide advice from divorce professionals. We also talk with divorce clients about what went right and what went wrong in their divorce. On today's edition of the Respectful Divorce Podcast, we're talking with Barbara Cole, an attorney with offices in Kerrville, Texas and Plano, Texas. Well, Barbara, thank you for joining this podcast today. We're so grateful for you to take some time out of your afternoon and spend with us to let everyone know who you are and what you do, the important work that you do. Well, thank you, Camille. I really appreciate you asking me. It's always a fun time to spend time with you. So here we go. You know, the feeling is mutual. (laughs) So let's just dive in. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, I'll, I'll try to keep it to a little bit because, you know, it's as every year goes by, there's more to say. Um, but I have uh, been in Texas since 1996 in Kerrville and then Dallas and uh, served the Metroplex. I'm originally from New Orleans and I'm licensed in both Louisiana and Texas. So I have a civilian background from my Louisiana work and a common law background uh, from my Texas work. And so um, I guess it makes me a hybrid in many ways. Um, It just makes you a greater blessing for the collaborative community. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And so to that point, could you tell us what brought you to the collaborative work that you do? Yeah, such a good question, Camille. I think it was a very natural segue for me. My mother worked for judges her whole career in juvenile court in New Orleans, and I literally grew up in a courtroom. And I got to see how people work together for the benefit of the children. And I got to sit in my mother's office and play on her typewriter and listen to what the judge and the lawyers were trying to do in his chambers. And um, so I think that seed was planted a very long time ago before the word collaborative ever actually came up. I was intrigued when um, Texas became the very first um, jurisdiction in the world to have a statute. And I was very proud of that. And the more I read about it, the more I wanted to be trained. It seems like um, it's a very natural um, way for us to help clients go to wisdom instead of conflict. Conflict does not help our clients or their children. And yesterday at our local collaborative divorce practice meeting, we had a speaker, Kevin Scudder, who is one of the leaders in collaborative in Washington State and particularly in the Seattle area. And he asked us, he posed a question for us to put to our clients. And so I'm going to put it to you. What what does a what does a happy client look like at the conclusion of a divorce handled in the collaborative process versus handled in the litigation process? In my experience, the clients who complete their journey uh, of changing their relationship from a marital relationship to a co-parenting or just a friend relationship uh, that use the collaborative process generally have a whole different feel about them when they're done. Uh, they have, it's not that they haven't had tension. It's not that they haven't had disagreements, but they've learned new skill sets as to how to take what wasn't working in the marriage, respect the differences that they have and find a pathway 
that gets to a conclusion, not 100% either way, yet gets to a conclusion without tearing the flesh. In litigation, the whole point is to hire me to go and eviscerate the other side, uh, to use my teaching skills, uh, my questioning skills, my doubting Thomas skills uh, to basically undermine the relationship. And at the end of it, then as lawyers, we wipe our hands and go, now go raise your children. And, that's and sadly, that is the justice system that we have in the litigation process for family cases at this point. Yes. Now, yes. when we talk about respectful, what it is about the collaborative process, and again, if you can do some comparison and contrast mm -hmm. with the litigation process, mm -hmm. that makes the collaborative divorce process more respectful to the parties and their families. Mm -hmm. It's such a good question. I think, well, first of all, the lawyers um, sit at the table with the clients and with our neutrals, our financial person or our parenting facilitator or our child advocate our mental health neutral, whoever's at the table. And there is a sense of professionalism and a true desire to walk this family through a process. And it's not, again, that there aren't disagreements or um, things that need to be worked out and not that there is intention. But at the end of the day, there are a set of rules and expected behaviors to get us through that. And I think that helps model behavior for the clients in many ways. In litigation process, the other lawyer can be as unkind and as crude and horrible as they want to be. And there's nothing to prevent them from doing that. Now, we're blessed. We have a lot of really good lawyers who choose not to behave that way. And there are also many lawyers who choose to behave that way. And I think sometimes that's because they have their own issues of fear as they walk into the courtroom or deal with their cases and they don't have enough confidence. I mean, generally, if someone's behaving that way, it's a confidence issue. You should be able to have an adult conversation about these issues at this stage of the game. So I think that the modeling of good behavior is one of the things that's very good about collaborative. And regretfully, uh, the courtroom is a battlefield. And the point is to win something. The only problem is in family law, there's nothing to win. There's only harm to be done if you're in a courtroom. That's a beautiful way to put that, Barbara. How would you describe that the children of a family are in a different place after collaborative process versus in litigation? You have said that the parties or the family is eviscerated. So how is it that the children might might be different at the end of a collaborative process versus, process versus in litigation? This is a huge focus in our practice, in my practice, um, uh, having been a teacher, uh, having grown up literally watching uh, children in the juvenile courtroom. Um, it is so important for children to be able to navigate their youth developmentally in the right spot, taking on the challenges they have to so they can grow appropriately. And divorce um, is a new challenge to them. And what happens in the collaborative process is that while the parents are learning new skill sets and behaviors to try to keep things calm and work things out, they're able to bring that to the children as well and to allow the children to walk along. The children can have a child specialist to talk to, and it's more of a team approach, like a business approach. 
And I think as the parents learn new skill sets and show their vulnerability and that there isn't a scarcity of love in this situation, then the children say, I think we're going to be okay. We're scared, but we're going to be okay because whatever is in that fear box is getting filled with new skills and no scarcity of love. In a, in a trial situation, what happens is that we can have counselors for the children who may or may not testify. And we can have attorneys for children who can let the court know what the children want to do or what the children are saying. It's such a formalized process that so so very little of what the child really wants to express ever gets heard. And time and time again, and you know this is, is true, Camille, from all the conferences that we have attended, judges do not want to be put in the position to have a child testify in their chambers. Yes. They do not want to do that. One, because they do not feel qualified. Most of our judges do not have backgrounds uh, in uh, child psychology or developmental issues. They've learned those things along the way. And I think, uh, I think it would be the rare person who would say that the best place for a child is in a courtroom. That is the last place that a child needs to be. In the collaborative divorce process, can you explain, in addition to the lawyers, who the other professionals are in most cases that can assist this uh, process to get the parties to the other side without mm -hmm. uh, the drama that the courtroom brings to the family or the devastation? Oh, I would love to, and mainly because it's one of the great options with collaborative practice. One is the parties can agree on who their uh, experts are going to be. And so they're saving money because they don't need in, in litigation that each have to go hire their own experts. In collaborative, our neutrals are there to help both parties. We and when you say neutrals, are those the same people that you've also referenced as experts? Not necessarily. Our, our um, neutrals would be our financial person who's going to take a look at the entire community and separate property and help the parties come up with options uh, to dissolve their relationship financially. Uh, another one of our neutrals is our mental health expert who generally runs our, our meetings and helps model good behavior, helps model what to do with fear and tension and um, the, the, the nervousness that comes up with just talking about difficult things. They're very helpful in teaching all of us, uh, the lawyers too, uh, about that. Uh, the experts would be someone like a, uh, a child specialist. They might also be a neutral. Um, if there's something in particularly unique about this couple and their family, and there's a need for input, um, you can hire an expert like a business evaluator or a specialist in education if there's some special needs for the children. Uh, those would be experts, not necessarily neutrals. Um, and the parties can define how that those people would um, be uh, enrolled in the process and what their purposes would be. And, and how a lot of times they provide education and information, don't they? 
Absolutely. I think that's that's one of the things that people think if they see divorces on television, that must be how it is. Or if the Aunt Mabel and the Uncle Harry got divorced and haven't spoken to each other in 50 years, that must be how it is. Um, and that's not how it is. Uh, there's a, a process of change. People meet each other, they date, they go through the courting process, they become engaged and they get married. Then they learn how to be married and they go through that process. And it is um, unfair in many ways to expect that the divorce process doesn't also have uh, a process of learning and how to uncouple and how to have safe space where love is not scarce and wisdom can reign and people can get along. Because the one thing that children um, really do not like is when their parents fight. Parents have to understand that when they are fighting, they might as well just take that arrow that they think is going in their spouse and pass it through the child first, completely through their body, pull it out and then put it in the spouse. And that's how children take that on. And if people could sincerely see that, they would be running to find an alternative route. That's just beautiful, Barbara. Can you drill down just a little bit and do an overview of the collaborative process being interest-based mm -hmm. versus the litigation or court system, which is position-based. And just give us a little bit of an overview or understanding of that. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, some friends and I were talking about this actually the other day, you know, what is the value in being right? How mm. much does someone want to spend financially, emotionally, relationally on I'm right? Well, at the end of the day, being right may not have as much value as connection. And connection and the ability to communicate has got to come to the middle. So um, interest-based, basically, you know, you know the story of the orange. You know, we take the orange and we find out who's interested in the peel versus who's interested in the pulp. And uh, we take that sweet analogy and apply it to the different aspects of a divorce and people's relationships. And um, and see what is it that each person really wants. And many times we're able to come up with some great options for those things to occur. And that is, it's coming from the person's interest, not just from a need to be right, or I wanna have it so they can't have it. That's where we get into litigation. And we and, there's something about litigation that seems to send us to our primal survival and fight or flight syndromes. Absolutely, Camille, you're so right. You know, you, you get into everybody's got a position. Well, there's a sense that if the judge doesn't agree 100% with my position that I lost something, I think we have to give our judges a lot of credit. At the end of the day, they sit on that bench 40 to 60 hours a week listening to the narratives and arguments and styles of people coming before them, they have a family code. And that code from the legislature and the lawyers who, and, and specialists who put into that, the whole goal is to get it so people are not positional. Mm -hmm. So that they can, that's why we have a standard uh, possession schedule. That's why we have a 50-50 division of community property. That's why we have a formula for health insurance and child support. The whole point is if you're making a decision that you're not going to be married anymore, here's some rules to help you. Mm -hmm. Now, at the end of the day, those people who want to fight and make the other spouse miserable while making their children miserable will find a way to undermine that. Mm -hmm. They're going to find a way to undermine that. It's when you, when a person, when a uh, couples are divorced, 
It still requires a great deal of flexibility uh, to raise those children. It, re it, it requires a great deal of understanding. Um, and nobody wins anything when the other one gets hurt. Nobody it frustrates me when people spend basically the children's future college fund mm -hmm. just fighting. And I just returned from the Denton County Bench Bar uh, meeting and our judges are wonderful, as you say, and yes. they get a little worn down and frustrated by people that spend unnecessary time fighting to try to prove to somebody that they're right. Mm -hmm. And the judges don't really care who's right. Their concern is an order that's enforceable to divide the property, that is fair, just, and equitable, and that is in the best interest of the children. And all the other, they seem to think, is just periphery. Correct. I think that's where you're right. And the periphery is where people end up spending tens of thousands of dollars. And at the end of the day, the judges are not focused on that. Mm -hmm. Rightfully so. Their mm -hmm. oath prevents them really from getting too entangled in the um, chaos of the relationship. Mm -hmm. They're going to keep trying to uh, bring do that deep dive on the issues that you've just shared with us so they can be efficient. Uh, they can conclude cases and then people have to do their own work as they move on so that they can have a good relationship or at least one that works. And one misconception I think about court is clients think it's like on television that the judge is going to hear the whole story in an hour or two or even a day. And mm -hmm. we have heard from lots of judges that they know they are only getting because of the limitations of time and the rules of evidence, a small snippet of what the story really is. So the best answers may not be able to come from that. I agree with you. Um, I used to tell my clients, you know, look at my desk and that's your whole narrative. And the judge is going to hear maybe this paperclip. You know, maybe that's as much as a judge can hear, at least in collaborative process, it being a process, having meetings, having meeting agendas, you can move the issues forward and, and people can have their say. You're not going to be cut off and you're not going to be cut off by the rules of evidence. Um, and if you need more time, you can get more time. Um, our judges are very pressed right now, and they are holding everyone's feet to the fire for 20 minutes for temporary orders and maybe an hour, maybe 30 or 40 minutes for a full blown uh, motion. If, if there's something serious is going on, right. Final right. trials are no more than an hour or two. Yeah. And if people have been married for 15 years and want the whole story told, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. So the judges are making decisions with in some ways it's a blindfold, but not the the statues of justice with the blindfold. It's not in a positive way. It's a negative way. That's correct. And it puts us uh, the lawyers in a bind because we we most of us feel very strongly about our duty to the client and all that that takes. We're very cognizant of what it costs. And we want to get that story out there. And yet we're limited. We're limited sometimes by cost and we're limited by what the judge uh, has in terms of time on the docket. Again, the collaborative process gives us the time we need with uh, very structured meetings. And you know what? If we need a mediation in that on an issue, we can bring in a mediator. That's another expert we can bring in. So you just have more tools to, to handle the problems and the difficulties and the things that don't work right in order to help this couple get launched into their new life. And you're working toward problem solving and resolution rather than vindictiveness. 
Absolutely. And and let's face it, I think at this point in time, our judges know if we are appearing before them, somebody's got a personality disorder, maybe mm-hmm. both. But generally, they know if this is a high conflict situation, these people are out of the norm because almost 95 to 98 percent of our cases settle in mediation. And and one of the things that our our guru, Chip Rose, says that I think is so interesting is that large number of cases settle. But rarely do people look at the quality of the settlement. Because when it's either at the courthouse steps, when you're about to start a trial, so you're under duress and stress, or in an eight-hour or 10-hour mediation so that you're basically being pressured by time, the collaborative process enables people to, to work through their issues without duress. And that ends up seeming to give them a better quality settlement. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. You know, walking into a conference room where your neutrals and your lawyer are are seated there and, you know, everyone is there to pull the rope in a certain direction so that you can be okay. And I think that sense of being it, there's a calm about it. Again, it's not that you don't have tension at times, but there's a desire for calm and to legitimately walk through what the issues are and to get creative. And you bring up a good point. You know, we, as you know, most almost all our cases have to go to mediation now, but we have a time limit. And sometimes eight hours isn't enough of a time to process or six hours or whatever it ends up really being, because one side half the day, they're not with the mediator. And so not much work is getting done there. Uh, It's good work when we can get it done. But I I do think that the collaborative process affords a greater uh, flexibility and option for people to um, conclude their business and move on. And one of the ways I think that that's done in comparison to mediation is by having two hour meetings, people Mm -hmm. are able to listen, to be heard and to be understood And they're able to go away and think about whatever tentative agreements they have reached so that when the agreement gets papered, I don't find that in collaborative cases, there's the buyer's remorse that so often comes the morning after a mediation. I think that's well said, um, Camille. Very well said. The process itself is set up to allow that type of reflection. And, it, and there, you should have that reflection. This is your life. And you're, you are so correct. So many times in mediation, um, the, the foot is tapping because the clock is ticking and people feel that pressure. So I know we don't have a lot more time. And so this next question we could do a whole podcast on and I hope we'll be able to at some point. Thank you. Uh, but on on this first one that we're going to do together, can you explain the difference, even though Louisiana is under civil law and Texas is different, uh, mm-hmm. how is the collaborative process the same or different in those two jurisdictions? I suspect it's more similar than people might mm-hmm. think. Absolutely. You know, that's what's so beautiful about the collaborative process. We have great international input. We've had some wonderful minds in this country and other countries come together and find out what are the things that happen in divorces that are similar so that we can create something that works for the couple and for the family. Louisiana uh, is founded in the French Civil Code. 
which has a fantastic historical um, uh, reference and past in the Roman law. And actually, you know, it's from the code. We have a family code in Texas. It's really from the French civil tradition that that code is created. Um, the actual difference in civil and common law does not really affect uh, what we do in collaborative practice. And so what's beautiful for me as a civilian and a common law practitioner is that um, I have an international practice as well. And so any place that has civil law, which are all the other countries that were not touched by the British Commonwealth, um, I understand the historical background of their family law. And now I can also do the same with the common law states. So um, I, I find it fascinating, culturally interesting. And um, again, in any other way, we could not complete a marriage with people from different countries or people from, um, say, Europe who are working here in Texas or Louisiana. You know, Admiralty is a big uh, business in Louisiana. Oil and gas is big in Texas and Louisiana. And so we have a lot of people from around the world um, that we like to serve and help them. And uh, we find this is most helpful, particularly because of the uniquenesses of possession schedules, children traveling, going back to see grandma and grandpa, wherever they live, Oma and Papa. Um, so um, I would say I'm kind of putting it all in the same bowl because the outcomes and interests in collaborative are the same. While some of the terminology is different, the thought process, process is quite the same. Barbara, this has just been wonderful. I hope you will promise to come back because I would like to hear more and more about this. You are a great professor and scholar of all this. And I would like to learn more about your work with Richard Rohr and how that has informed your practice and your work in the collaborative process when you have time. I so, would love to. Thank you so much. Yes, I'd love to bring that in. Thank you for sharing part of your day with us. And I know it, it has been a great gift to me and it will be to all our listeners. So thank you. And I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you so much. And thank you for the work that you're doing, Camille. Appreciate you. Thanks, Barbara. All right. Bye-bye. Tune in next time for another edition of the Respectful Divorce Podcast. And remember that collaborative divorce is a better way to untie the knot.